I realized that what I had been told this whole time was a complete and total lie. I was told the banjo was a white invention mm. in Appalachia. I knew it like I knew the back of my hand, right? If something like that fundamental is completely not true, what else isn't true? What else am I being told that's not true about American history? And that kind of, you know, that's been the mission. Over its journey, the big interview has spoken to musicians, authors, actors and historians. This week's guest is all of those things and probably a few others we've missed. Rhiannon Giddens studied opera before becoming interested in America's folk traditions and the untold stories behind them, stories she told via such projects as the Carolina Chocolate Drops and Our Native Daughters. Her work has won her a Pulitzer Prize, a couple of Grammys, and a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, among other accolades. Her most recent album is You're the One. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Rhiannon Giddens on The Big Interview. Rhiannon Giddens, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to talk about, such is the, the variance of your career, and I, actually I'm kind of tempted to turn this into a half hour long seminar on time management about which I, I, I think you would have a great deal to teach our listeners. I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> uh, but we will start with the new album, You're the One, which presents itself very much in a certain way. The cover, the big headshot with the, the lurid colours and the, the cheerful globular font. Um, it's very much that, well, it seems very much a homage to those early 70s country and soul albums by the likes of Tammy Wynette, Aretha Franklin, Dolly Parton. Was that the idea? I mean, I think so. I, I love your descriptors, by the way, globular. <laughs> I mean, I just like, I'm putting that in my pocket for future use. Um, it totally is because the music is... You know, it, it is that kind of throwback without trying to be vintage. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's just like drawing inspiration from those styles, those design styles, and also the fact that people are buying vinyl again. So it's like, you know, okay, let's go in and, and make a, a vinyl cover. You know what I mean? It looks like a vinyl record. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, let's lean into it. Like, you know, <laughs> it's back. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who knew, you know? Um where do you start to go about assembling the tracks on the album, though? Because there's, I, I understand they were written over a long period, and they are, they are a very divergent collection of sounds. Yeah, I mean that's who I am, basically. So, <laughs> it's because I don't, I have never set any kind of pattern with how I make my records. I'm not a prolific songwriter. I'm not a personal point of view songwriter, really. You know, when it comes down to it, I'm not a put the record out, tour for two years, put another record. I mean, I'm, I'm all over the shop. So this album, I had all of these songs that didn't fit in other projects, and they just kind of seemed to want to be together, you know? And I said, well, maybe it's time to do this. Um, one song I, I did want to ask about in particular, because I'm kind of hoping it will be a seamless pivot to talking about your broader life story, which is the, the duet with Jason Isbell, Yet to Be. It's a long, Here and now is better than it was back then. 
which presents itself as a duet between a black woman and an Irish man. Is there any amount in that of you projecting your own personal history and or circumstances? I mean, it's like it's like my life and, and my art are kind of, they're all together, you know, <laughs> because like one leads me to the other, you know. So the interest I have in, I've always been interested in early American history and the music that came out of that and the Black-Irish exchange is very well known at this point, even if some of the aspects of it have been hidden, you know, it's like mm. some of them have been talked about like tap, say, for example, but then others have not. And so I'm very interested in that. Obviously, my ex is Irish. I live in Ireland. The idea of bridging worlds and the idea of mixed children and mixed families, I come from a mixed family, those things attract me. And I think the thing about yet to be is that, you know, we talk a lot about you know, negative aspects of being separated, of, mm. of, you know, okay, the groups are not the same, and who's coming from above to say, you're not like you are, like, keep fighting so that we can keep all the money in the power, you know? <laughs> There's such a long history of that in the States. We never talk about the millions of instances of people just meeting each other and going, hey, oh, I have a bit of a laugh with you. Let's, let's, let's do something together. Let's make music. Let's make a family. Let's make a business. There was so much of that going on you know, for hundreds of years in America. Mm. And so I just kind of went, you know, I talk a lot about the negative stuff and how we need to overcome these things and et cetera. But let's like just take a moment and celebrate the fact that like when my parents got together, it had just barely become nationally legal, Mm. right? Barely. And they, you know, had a lot of difficulties because of that being a mixed couple. It is extraordinary to think how recent that was. It was so recent. It was like, you know, my sister's lifespan, right? Mm. And, And she's a little bit older than I am. And then you think about today where it's like there's no issue with meeting somebody of a different race or a different culture, you have no legal impediments, you know, between you. And then also thinking about there's people who still think there should be. You know what I mean? So it's like we have come a long way in some ways, and then there we have to celebrate what we have gained so that we don't let them take it back because that's happening right now. Like in real time, think strides that have been gained are now being undone. And so you have to actually realize what a big deal it is that we have these freedoms so that we hold on to them tighter and so that we don't let them be, you know, taken away again. It's an interesting idea for a protest song, which are usually geared towards, I guess, saying these are the things we want, whereas that one reads more of a determination to hold the ground we have. Yeah, it's like, you know, this is a long freaking way from where it was, Mm. you know, 40, 50 years ago. Let's keep it and keep building on it. It's not like everything sucks. Because as much as it is tempting to say that right now with the world kind of burning up into a crisp, you know, there are still amazing things that we have gained. And I was in that mode when I wrote that song, you know, and I think it's okay to kind of have that moment of like, I'm here because of my parents. You know what I mean? Hmm. They're here because of what their parents went through and, and on down the line. And now I get to have choices that, you know, they didn't get to have. So like... Let's take a minute and go, okay, that's cool. Now, let's hold on and let's keep going and fight for other people who don't have that freedom. But but that song in particular does, I think, echo quite a lot of the themes of your previous work. And you mentioned already that interest you have in American history, especially the bits of American history that get disregarded. Which came first, though? Did you end up being interested in historical country and folk music because of the interest in history or did the history lead you to the music? Well, I went, I I came kind of through the back door. So I think the ground was set 
like the framework was kind of prepared just living in the country with my grandparents, living in North Carolina. You know, I went to study opera. When I came back, I went to Ohio, which was, you know, 10 hours away. I came back to North Carolina and I discovered folk dance. I discovered contra and square dance. So Mm -hmm. I discovered this community where the music was all live music and a lot of it was old time music. There was something in that music, in the way the banjos played in old-time music, you know, as opposed to bluegrass, which is what I would have grown up hearing, bluegrass, old Mm -hmm. country. And this was an older, rootsier kind of funky style that I was, like, immediately attracted to, not knowing anything about the history of the banjo. So, like, I was attracted to the music and this community surrounding it, this idea of people are making music, people are dancing to it. There's no electricity involved except for the lights and the PA, you know, (laughs) and we're all just kind of creating this community together. There's no alcohol allowed. It was just kind of a throwback to the, you know, some earlier forms of community making. And then I discovered the banjo was an African invention. It was an African diasporic invention in the Caribbean. And I went, whoa. And it it just changed the whole trajectory of my life because I realized that what I had been told this whole time was a complete and total lie. And so not only was I kind of blown away by, oh, wow, I don't have to ask permission to, <laughs> to play the banjo. Like, <laughs> I never did. Like, anybody can play the banjo. But you know what I mean? You kind of feel like I'm kind of, you know, tiptoeing into this music that's not actually it's it's mine and it's it's everybody's, it's ours, whatever. But also it started me on this quest, which I'm still on and I'll never be off of, you know, if something this obviously opposite, like I was told the banjo was a white invention Mm. in Appalachia. I knew it like I knew the back of my hand, right? If something like that fundamental is completely not true, what else isn't true? What else am I being told that's not true about American history? And that kind of, you know, that's been the mission. Does that idea, that received wisdom about the banjo, that it is, as you say, you know, an Appalachian invention, that it is the bedrock of country music, which is still, I think, largely thought of as white folks' music, does that strike you as representative of a misapprehension about country music as a whole? Totally. I mean, one of the reasons why the banjo has been so central to my story is because it's such a beautiful representation of the overall shape of how American culture has been told, which is this idea of separation, this idea of largely Anglo, right, Anglo-Protestant innovation, and then these other kind of like ethnic groups sort of like adding to it, you know, and inspiring things. And it's actually that is the most opposite of the truth there is. The truth is that there's been cultural collaboration from the very beginning. There have been multiple and extremely diverse cultural groups that have been coming over to the Americas, right? Mm. North America, South America, and Central America and the Caribbean since the very beginning, since the 1400s. Like, there's no monolithic group that was coming over. And it's been a 450, you know, whatever, 500-year journey of cultural creation. What then happens is that this narrative starts to be told about that. And that is what people start to believe rather than, you know, because when you have caste-based slavery, when you have race-based slavery, that means that you separate everything into black and white. And all of the shades in between, everything in between 
has to choose or mm. is forced into one or the other. So you miss all of the multi-shades of whiteness, of blackness, of brownness, all the different people from all the different places. And they have to give up things to become white or they have to lose things to become black or whatever. And so it's a very black-white, pardon the pun, way of thinking, which doesn't really fit how America came to be. But that's not what we learn in the schools. We learn that, you know, everything is immutable, everything's homogenous, and like black people over here, white people over here. And it's like, what is black? What is white anyway? You know, and you think about the waves of immigration, even from Northern Europe, there were, you know, Germany, Mm -hmm. Norway, like, I mean, there's so many different groups coming that have all their own different cultural issues, all their own different religions. And it's just kind of like, I don't know. So my thing is that the banjo just represents a larger you know, story that what it does is very harmful because it leaves out a lot of the story and it also, you know, makes us believe that we have to put diversity back in, you know, we have to put it into American culture when it's always been there. You know, the immense numbers of Chinese people that have been in the States for generations. Mm -hmm. They're as American as anybody else, but because we're so fixated on race, which is such a false way to separate people, they don't have the same buy-in to the American story as as somebody who presents as white, you know? So it's just, it's a large, 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 large (laughs) issue. And I just like... You know, I'm a musician. I was led to the banjo, and the banjo is just one example. But it's it's a really beautiful one because it is the only, like, when you look at America as a nation state, it's the only American instrument. Like, disregarding indigenous instruments, of mm. course, which would have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. When you look at America as the colony that it is, the banjo is one of the instruments that was created from what then creates America. So when you formed the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which I believe was after meeting the great American fiddler Joe Thompson, did you have a a sense of mission about the group? We did. You know, it was me and Dom Flemons and, and Justin Robinson. And after we started playing with Joe Thompson, who's was 86-year-old African-American fiddler, one of the last of the old traditions. Now, he wasn't the only black fiddler, but he was the last of this kind of string band tradition that had been passed down father to son or or uncle to nephew or whatever that, that kind of led back into slavery times. also a community-based musician that grew up in the community that he served. So it's a very old style of music that used to be done everywhere by everybody. But we were lucky enough to, you know, learn his family's music and to kind of get it passed down to us. And we created the Carolina Chocolate Drops, named after the Tennessee Chocolate Drops, which was mm-hmm. Howard Armstrong, who was a famous black fiddler, but more of a city style. That was his first band. So we kind of named ourselves after them and as an homage. Our mission was to spread not only Joe's music, but the story of the black string band, the story of the banjo, and complicating the narrative of where American music comes from. And the idea of, you know, black people playing fiddles and banjos was as commonplace as apple pie. And, you know, so that kind of led us down a particular path of we didn't really, you know, become professional musicians to be famous or to make a lot of money. We wanted to try to set the record straight. And that kind of has been our 
that was our North Star and has been my North Star ever since. You became, though, I think I'm right in saying the first black string band to actually play the Grand Ole Opry. As far um, as we know. How big a moment did that feel? Did you feel like you had stormed some sort of citadel? Well, it's, it's weird because, you know, they thought we did. <laughs> I don't know. It was it was an interesting thing because, you know, they were like, this feels like a healing moment. And I'm like, like, you know, the publicity and the Opry. And I'm, I'm like, sure. he, but I'm like, healing for who? You know what I mean? Like, mm. what's the narrative told here? Like, we were happy to be there. We were happy to represent. We were always game for representing. But I had mixed feelings about it because I'm like, systemically, what has changed? What is happening in the larger? What You know, I was just looking at a, a, a story about radio play. And it's like radio play is still minuscule when it comes to black artists in the country mm. genre. So it's like, it's a step. But sometimes people act like that's the end instead of the beginning. That was a beginning to us. It was like, oh, that's great. We're here after DeFord Bailey was completely dissed and, you know, and erased from this history, who is a member of the Black String Band tradition. You know, obviously he was on his own. And we're here to kind of say, hey, let's remember about this stuff. But then then what? Is that a commonplace frustration that every time some sort of advance like this has been made, whether it's in country music and the Nashville establishment being able to go, look, we all like Charlie Pride, everything's fine, up to and including a black man being elected president of the United States, there's a tendency among people, possibly even a well-meaning one, to go, it's fixed, we've done it. Oh, it's such a... I mean, it's like, it's happened so many times. And it's like, y'all had this, aren't y'all happy yet? You know, and, I, and I'm like, this is not about... Single people having success. This is not about Oprah. This is not about Shonda Rhimes, right? This is about all the rest of the people. This is about the systemic destruction, attempted destruction of African-American people. I mean, this is like attempt. You could say that in large part and in some places, like an attempted genocide. When you look at the carceral population, when you look at how black men are sentenced, when you look at how they're put into solitary, when you look at how neighborhoods have been redlined, when you even look at the older yet still very much present things like what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where, you know, black businesses and people were murdered in, in Wilmington, 1898. It's just a constant history when you look at places where, you know, there's chemical factories and like nobody cares, you know? And it's not just happening to black people. But when you look at the percentage of how much it's happening, black women have the worst maternal outcomes in the United States, you know, in terms of of mortality. On every front, we have to fight. On every front, we have to fight. And you want to tell me that just because we had a black president, everything is okay? It's like he couldn't even wear a tan suit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Like Trump got in there and did whatever the heck he wanted. And Obama said Pakistan. And like, that was it. They wouldn't. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like the difference is so much. People like to just kind of put it all together because our discourse has been so just depressed down to like the most. People don't even know how to logically argue or to listen to people or to be critical of things. They just go, well, this just because y'all got this, then it means it's over. We still got to talk about slavery. I'm like, we haven't even begun because the way we talk about these things is so surface, so shallow, and it doesn't really get to how when you have something that the foundation is built on these terrible negative things, that means that everything that comes out of it is tainted by that. And we have to like sit down and look at it and it's like, look, it's not your fault personally, but you are a recipient of a system that is unequal. So we have to look at it systemically. I'm like, I don't even care anymore. Call me whatever you want. 
but like, let's look at the system because that's the only way we're going to get forward. We mentioned the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Quite possibly a lot of people listening to this know you best from your appearance in the TV series Nashville in which you played the gospel singer Hallie Jordan. When you took that role, did you see that as part of, I guess, the same mission? And what do you think about it now? Yeah, I always take things kind of like, you know, does this serve either me artistically? Does it serve the mission or does it bring me in a, a whole ton of money so that I can do other artistic <laughs> things, right? And, you know, it has to be two out of three. And for that one, I felt like it was artistically interesting because I had to learn how to act. Mm. And, you know, I had never done any kind of acting. And then mission-wise, because the showrunner, Marshall Herskovitz, the showrunner was very interested in what I did. When I did the audition for Nashville, I brought my banjo, my Mm. 1858 replica banjo, and I wrote a song and I was like, this needs to be in the show. And he was like, you're right. So he changed my character to reflect myself as a musician. I mean, Hallie was not originally a banjo player. She was more of a magical Negro, you know, in the beginning. And that, you know, and this is the thing you have to go, is there opportunity for change in this or is this going to be the same old thing? Because Marshall had such an interest in the chocolate drops and that part of my history, I kind of felt like, okay, I'm going to take a chance on this. And he totally did it. I got to play banjo in Nashville. I got to play for a bunch of little black children and like, you know, bring in two of my chocolate drop mates, you know, to do this thing. Nobody remarked on it at the time, which was really interesting to me. I'm like, here you have this really popular country music show and you have this black woman playing banjo. that carry me home Lead me through both right and wrong Talking about old stuff and, like, nobody cared. (laughs) You know what I mean? If that had happened now, maybe there would have been articles or something. But, like, nobody cared. It just kind of, like, came and went. And I was like, well... You know, I tried, and it's out there, and and the people who love Nashville saw that, and and you know what I mean? You just kind of do what's brought to you and say, can I use this opportunity to further the conversation? I think I did, you know, and I also really enjoyed it. I learned a lot being on that. So if those things are together, I feel like how much of an impact it makes, I have no control over, you know, and so I just try to do the best I can with the opportunity that I'm given. We are bouncing around somewhat from project to project, which is inevitable given your resume. But I did want to ask about Our Native Daughters, the all-female, all-black banjo supergroup. Basically, what I most wanted to ask about that is, is there going to be any more where that record came from? I mean, you know, like, those ladies are, like, hitting it. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's, like, amazing. And that's kind of what I was hoping with that record is that it would bring attention They already had attention, but they the, all three of them need as many lights on them as, as possible because they're all incredible people and they're all doing very different things with their music. So that project was actually never meant to be a band. It just like we had to form a band around it to, to like perform for the release. And then we were like, oh, man, this is awesome. We should do this more, you know. And so when it's time, I think all four of us, we've said multiple times, anytime we get together, we're like, we got to do this again. So it's just a matter of when everybody's career, you know, like calms down for a second, you know, and Allison kind of comes out of the out of the stratosphere, you know, we can have a moment and go, OK, what is there for us to say together right now? And then I think we'll 
you know, I think we'll do something else. It's just a matter of timing. Well, if we're waiting for everybody's careers to calm down for a second, we might be waiting a while for that, as I, as I will now seamlessly demonstrate. And this is where we get to the part that I foreshadowed by saying that your insights into time management, I think, would be welcomed by a lot of our listeners. But uh, you recently won a Pulitzer Prize for your opera Omar with Michael Abels, which is about Omar Ibn Saud, a, a memoirist of slavery. I think the only Arabic language memoirist of slavery. How much of a leap of faith is is it to decide after all the other leaps of faith you've taken, as in, here's this thing, I guess I can do this, but to sit down and write an opera? How long does it take to talk yourself into the reality that here I am writing an opera? It was a constant process because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Even you saying those words, the Pulitzer, I still like, is this going to be an elaborate joke that somebody's going to pop out in the back and say, actually, we're just kidding. I still don't believe it. But, you know, when I was offered that opportunity, the way I look at opportunities is, I take calculated risks. So I go, okay, do I have enough in me to make a start at this? And then do I know enough to know who to ask to help me, right? Because mm. I know what I bring. I'm not interested in spending 10 years to learn the stuff that I need to learn that I don't know. I just would rather bring somebody else in <laughs> and then collaborate because that's what I do. I'm a collaborator. So when something like the opera, I was like, well, I've read a lot of libretti. I've been in a lot of operas. I've listened to a lot of operas. i probably can do this. Let me find somebody who knows the orchestra and then we can work together, you know, and that's what happened. And it just was an incredible experience. But there were multiple times when I was like, I would have this moment of like, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is crazy. Like, why did they hire? And I would reach out to my friend Dan, who I, you know, wrote one of the parts for his voice. You know, we went to school together and he'd be like, what am I doing? What am I freaking out? And he'd just be like, if they wanted a conventional composer, they would have hired one. They hired you, so just do the thing you do, you know? And I'd be like, okay, 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 it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. I mean, I, you know, everybody has these moments, but you have to create this group around you. This not people who are just going to wave smoke up your butt, you know, and just say, everything's great. But you need the people who are supporting what you are doing, and they know what you want to do. And they're not afraid to say, you know... I don't think this is great, but I see what you're trying to do or whatever. Being encouraging can go both ways. And so I feel like I have that group around me now that's just like, you know, just keep going because because they would have hired somebody else if they wanted somebody else. You know, but you do need to hear that because it is, you know, imposter syndrome is real. And mm. I was, you know, it's kind of trailblazing a little bit, you know, because I've never taken a composition class. I don't write in notation. I write orally. I write you know, with my voice, with my fingers. And it took me doing that process and working with Michael Abels, my co-composer, for me to go, oh, you know, I am a composer, you know? But it's like, you have to really believe in the project, I think, instead of in yourself. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, it really shouldn't to, be... To take the work seriously, but not yourself necessarily. Yeah, and that's, and that's how I stay centered and grounded. Is like, for me, it's all about the work. It's all about... The mission, like I wanted to tell Omar's story. So I was like, I better get my stuff together so I can tell his story. It's not, let me get my stuff together so I can be a celebrated composer. I'm not interested in that because <laughs> I'm not. Let me get my stuff together so I can tell his story the best way that I can. And I'm only going to tell it the way that I tell it. And I want it to be told by 50 other people, you know, because they're going to bring something that they bring to it. But we all have our own our own angle on it. And I feel like if I have, I think, something to say 
in the way to tell a story, then I will do it. Otherwise, I'll go, well, maybe you should find somebody else. But in Omar, there were so many connections. And the stuff that I needed to learn, I felt like I could learn that because I knew all the other stuff already because I'd been working on it. You know, the the stuff in Senegal, for example, I I had to learn that. I had to learn a lot about the Quran and about Islam. And that was a huge learning curve. But slavery in the U.S. in the 18... you know, I got that, you know, like, you know, at least enough to do this opera. So it was an amazing experience. But does the interest in a character like Omar Ibn Saud come from a similar place to a lot of the other motivations you discussed, i.e. there's just this thing and there seems to be the sense of, oh, my God, how do more people not know about this? I mean, 100 percent. I'm from North Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina. I am a North Carolina educated person. And I had no idea about Omar Ibn Said, who lived 50 years enslaved in North Carolina and left this incredible document, this autobiography in Arabic, died enslaved, like literally two hours away from where I grew up. And I never knew. I never learned this in school. And I'm like, that infuriates me because it's like, you know, again, the the idea of what is the American story, even what is the story about enslaved people? People don't even know that so many Muslims were enslaved, you know, like one-fifth to one-fourth, some people say. And that's a whole other perspective. There were people coming from different, you know, they had different skill sets, they had different histories, they had different spiritual relationships, they had different religions. And it's just like there were nobody was a blank slate before they came over here, including Europeans, you know what I mean? So it's like he just is a representation of the complication of the American story. And I think the more of that, the more we can actually grapple with why it's so complicated now. Because people, like, I think have this this weird, like, they run into this wall because we've been told this very simplified mm. story. And then when they get to the reality of what American life is, they can't accept it because they're like, but I was told this. And it's like, well, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, if it's simple in history, it's probably wrong. Just finally, we will go back sort of to where we came in. And I'm I'm going to ask you to pass on a recommendation to our listeners, because I know from my own long years as a somewhat tragic nerdish fan of country music, that (laughs) that a lot of people, especially in Europe, do still incline towards the sceptical. And there are stereotypes attached to the banjo in particular, associated with toothless inbred simpletons on the porches of their shack somewhere up a hill, etc., If you were to recommend one artist or one piece of music or something for people to start with that they might get from the banjo, what you clearly do, what would it be? (sighs) I would make two recommendations. Please. So first I would would go listen to... Oh, man, I'd listen to Our Native Daughters. recommendation I heartily endorse. You know, because we kind of, we'd rip the wings off all of those stereotypes, you know. And just to say the stereotypes about Appalachian people are stereotypes completely, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because Appalachia is much more complex and interesting and, you know, this whole cousins marrying thing. I mean, it's just, (laughs) you know, they're like the last cultural group that it's okay to make fun of. Indeed. And it's terrible, you know, so I just want to say that to say it. I mean, off the top of my head, I love Amethyst Kia 
grew up in Johnson City, and she's got this super thick accent and, like, you know, either learned how to play banjo and also has this incredibly soulful voice. Like, she represents, I think, the nexus of all of those kinds of musics, you know, with what she does. So I really would recommend just, you know, hitting one of her songs. There is a podcast that has been blowing my mind. It's called Before We Were White. And it is by Brian Halpin, and it, and it really digs into the multiculturalness of what we now call whiteness in a lot of areas, including and especially Appalachia and some tri-isolate, what they call tri-isolate communities, where you have these mixtures that go, you know, back to the 1500s, 1600s of people who were coming over. So that is... It's a long listen. There's multiple, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's totally worth it. And it will give you a better idea of what is truly the American story, you know, rather than the stuff we get in, through Hollywood, which is all fabrication, you know, based on like little tiny, tiny, tiny grains of sand of truth. Rhiannon Giddens, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.